You have reached the Geek Elite. Good luck. In my lifetime, I expect to see three, four, perhaps even more women on the high court bench. Women not shaped from the same mold, but of different complexions. Welcome back, everybody, to United States of Women. And because Jessica and I were just talking about our failings on previous episodes of this podcast and mm-hmm. Love of Pages, want to let you all know that we have a Patreon page for Patreon. Media. <laughs> uh, please come join us over there. We've got some really awesome uh, releases, mm-hmm. extra episodes for this podcast, extra episodes for the Love of Pages podcast, fun survey questions with the Geeks Watch group, mm-hmm. just all sorts of cool and random things. Yep. Plus, your patronage helps us do these podcasts. Yay! Gets me the resources I need, the information we need, mm-hmm. access to things to keep bringing this to you. <laughs> so, Jessica. Yes. Today, yes, we are going to talk about a voice worthy of champagne. Ooh. In particular, uh, we're going to talk about Marian Anderson. Okay. Okay. So, Marian Anderson, just kind of a, a general one sentence statement, mm-hmm. was an American contralto singer <laughs> who. Moved millions with her voice, and although she never was focused on it, Mm -hmm. was a catalyst and a inspiration in the civil rights movement. Ooh, really? Mm -hmm. So, just generally, because normally, so. Normally we talk about, you know, a, a specific historical topic. Uh, mm-hmm. This season we've done muckraking, we've done orphanages, mm-hmm. we've done uh, spies in the American Revolution. Inventing. Inventing, <laughs> yeah, the history of patent law. Mm-hmm. So I was prepping for Marian Anderson and trying to give you a topic <laughs> to introduce yourself with. I struggled because... While so many things impacted her life, mm-hmm. the thing she contributed was her music and her voice. Yep. And the thought of trying to do the history of opera in a half-hour podcast while talking about Marian Anderson seemed a little much. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it just seemed a bit excessive. Just a little bit. Just a little bit excessive. <laughs> so I thought you and I might just kind of generally talk about Things about music that make us happy, because you are a passionate singer. (laughs) I love music and musicals, and I sing mostly when people aren't listening anymore. (laughs) used to sing a lot more. (laughs) But, so, what is your favorite musical? Oh, oh, okay. And I, the sad thing is, you gave me time to think about my favorite (laughs) musical. And I still, it's just... Okay, top three. Does that make it easier? <sighs> yeah, Harder. maybe. Maybe maybe easier. I definitely love Alexander Hamilton. 
Adieu. I know everybody loves Alexander Hamilton, but I love Lin Manuel Miranda and how he writes and how he thinks and just <laughs> and and it's just to me it was just such so groundbreaking of a musical mm-hmm. just to make. I just remember listening to it and I was like, how come nobody told me this was actually an opera? Because I had, I tried to not like ruin the musical for me. So I would only listen to like the 10 songs. So I never listened to like the whole album like some people did before they saw the musical because I didn't want it to be ruined for me. And so when I saw that they're still singing and they're still singing, I was like, oh my God, it's an opera. Why did nobody tell me it was an opera? (laughs) Like, that's awesome. Um, I definitely love the music man okay i grew up watching it and i don't know why i absolutely love and it's more the librarian character in it that i absolutely love because she's ridiculed by the other women for reading all these like um not feminist but like romance novels (laughs) it's not what we would consider romance novels nowadays and Oh, I don't know. I'm having a hard time picking a third one. Tell me yours. Okay. So mine would definitely, like Hamilton I love, but I think my favorite would still probably be Book of Mormon. I just, I, I find seen it. that one. I think why I love it is because it does deal with some very serious topics in a very comedic way. Mm-hmm. Now that's Seth MacFarlane, right? Yeah. From Family Guy? Yeah. yeah. He's got a beautiful, I don't know if he sings in it at all, but man, he's got that jazzy, like almost Frank Sinatra-like voice. <laughs> oh, his Christmas album. It's <laughs> great. Oh. Um, and then I also adore uh, when it comes to less uh, theatrical, more silver screen musicals singing in the rain yeah that's it for me i thought of that right when i passed it over to you i was like oh singing in the rain no (laughs) but yeah so i mean and you know i i always love running across in social media those like conversations about how musicals and theater and the arts teach us about history and science Mm -hmm. and society Mm -hmm. all of those things so you know, music is definitely a pretty major part of what moves people. Like, I would say that like music is, it can be very progressive about right? the world. And I think it's because people that write, they kind of have to be a little bit empathetic to the world or to other, other things. And it kind of sort of makes you progressive yeah. in a way. I mean, in every... And the funny thing about music, too, this kind of reminds me of, like, every generation is, like, they have that music that changes a genre, like, from, like, classical to rock or something like that. And they're like, this is, like, when the Beatles came out, it was scandalous when the Beatles came out. (laughs) and Or Elvis, it was scandalous. And then, but that's, like, every 10 years, there's some new music genre that comes out, and it's just, it's scandalous. (laughs) No, exactly, exactly. Well, and I, I feel like... Because music taps into the human experience, mm-hmm. that it does kind of cross nationalities, mm-hmm. culture, time. Yeah. And so it, it does provide that kind of breakthrough. Yep. You know, so, yeah. So that's, dear listener, <laughs> when we give you the information at the end of the podcast on how to reach out to us, share with us your favorite musical. Yeah. And how music has impacted you or history. Yeah. There really is. There's so much to talk about. But 
I really want to focus in on Marian Anderson, mm-hmm. the voice worthy of champagne. Mm-hmm. And I will get to where I pulled that title. Okay. From, I promise. So we've done it now a few times. Um, we are discussing Marian Anderson is African American. Okay. Okay. And as we've said on, on more than one occasions, we do our best. We want to give voice and give give equal space to these individuals. We obviously do our best to be sensitive to the historical plight, the historical mm-hmm. perception. And bias. And bias. <laughs> um, obviously, there, there are certainly people out there who are probably better suited to do this than us. <laughs> I, I'm certain. Yeah. But... We'll do our best to contribute where we can. Yes. So, Marian Anderson mm-hmm. was born February 27th, 1897, in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Ooh. So, hence the reason she's part of our lovely Women of Pennsylvania mm-hmm. season. She was born to John Barkley Anderson and Annie Delilah, Delilah Rucker Anderson. Mm. Her father sold ice and coal at the Reading Terminal in downtown Philadelphia and eventually also sold liquor. So Ooh. definitely, definitely upper working class, mm-hmm. lower middle class, but decently well. Prior to getting married, Anderson's mother had taught as um, was a, a school teacher in Virginia after having attended the Virginia Seminary and College Mm -hmm. in Lynchburg. Unfortunately, due to laws in Philadelphia, Mm -hmm. she was not allowed to teach uh, because she was married. But that only applied to African-American women, not to white women. Anymore. Okay. In in this time. So... Okay. Yeah. I mean, I know for like a long time it was that teachers couldn't be married at all because teachers had to be like the the supreme woman, the the mo- the innocent. Woman, I don't know yeah. what the idea behind it was. Was that teachers they weren't even allowed to court? Like, just yeah, it was just it was weird. Yeah. Um. But in any case, Marion had two sisters, Elise and Ethel, mm. and. The reason I, I actually named these, both of them were also singers, and Ethel married James DePriest, and they had a son named James Anderson DePriest, who's a notable conductor. Yep. <laughs> so, wait, hence, is he the. Hold on. <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> He's not the one. But yeah, so. James Anderson DePriest, he rearranged the theme song for the Cosby show, and he was the head conductor of the Oregon Philharmonic Orchestra for decades. Cool. I love good orchestra pieces. Right? So, Marian Anderson, I feel like a lot of musicians, Mm -hmm. um, this is a a very common thread. Mm -hmm. So, her parents were very devout Christians, mm-hmm. and they attended the Union Baptist Church in South Philadelphia, where Marion's aunt, Aunt Mary, mm. uh, was particularly active in the church's 
musical life and convinced Marion to join the junior church choir at the age of six. All right. Yeah. Gospel choir is a good start for a singer. Yep. Yeah. Um, she began to perform solos and duets, often with her aunt during that time. Yeah. And Mary would take Marion to concert at concerts at local churches, the YMCA, benefit concerts, and other community music events mm-hmm. throughout the city. Uh, beginning at age six, wow, her aunt also arranged for Marion to sing for local functions where she was often paid twenty-five to fifty cents for singing a few songs. I imagine that at this time that she had to be a very amazing singer, right? Yeah, <laughs> and. By the time she was in her early teens, she was making as much as 4 or $5 for this singing. A very amazing singer. That's yeah. cool. Uh, which was, I mean, we talked about the conversion last week with mm-hmm. Ida Tarbell's $3,000 being 90000 Yeah. So you're looking, this is about the same time period. So you're looking at, you know, $4 being... So she's making $120 a couple hours. Yeah. (laughs) But when Anderson was 12, her father received a head injury while working at the terminal just before Christmas in 1909. And soon after he died. Mm. Marion and the rest of her family would then move in with her paternal grandparents, uh, her grandfather had been born a slave and was emancipated in the 1860s. He had relocated to South Philadelphia and was the first in his family to do so. Oh. So Anderson became very close with him, although he passed away a few years later. Mm. So you definitely have a lot of tragedy, tragedy early on. She attended grammar school, graduating in 1912. Mm. And although her family couldn't pay for any music lessons... She continued to perform wherever she could and learn from anybody who was willing to teach her. Just generally, however she could figure out how to do that. Mm -hmm. So to do that, she became a member of the Baptist Young People's Union and the Campfire Girls, which was a a choral group as part of the Baptist Church. That's pretty cool. And that provided her with some limited opportunities. Mm -hmm. Her reverend... Reverend Wesley Parks, along with other leaders in the church, actually ended up raising money for her to receive singing lessons with Mary Saunders Patterson and to attend South Philadelphia High School, from which she graduated in 1921. Mm. So basically, just through grassroots support, she was able to get the music lessons she needed to move on with her career. After high school... She applied to an all-white music school in Philadelphia called the Philadelphia Music Academy, now the University of Arts, but was turned away because of the color of her skin. Mm -mm. The woman working admissions had replied, we don't take colored when she had tried to apply. Anderson, however, continued to pursue pursue private study, and Mm. through those same grassroots supports, she was able to obtain lessons from Agnes Rensenfire, then Giuseppe Boghetti. Mm. She actually ended up having met Boghetti through her, the principal of her high school. She had auditioned for him by singing Deep River, which brought him to tears. Oh. Her first 
big recital was in the town hall in New York City on April 1924 and took place in almost an empty hall, receiving poor reviews. But she was undaunted. So in 1925, she entered a singing competition sponsored by the New York Philharmonic. Ooh, okay. And she won. Yay! (laughs) So she, in winning... That meant she got to perform with the orchestra in a concert on August 26, 1925. Mm-hmm. It had immediate success. Wow. It was huge, both with the audience and music critics. She continued her studies, and she obtained a manager, Arthur Judson. Hmm. He arranged for her first performance at Carnegie Hall. In 1928. And during her fall 1929 concert, she sang at the Orchestra Hall in Chicago. Mm -hmm. It was determined at that time that she had superb potential, but Mm -hmm. lacked skill. Because she wasn't professionally trained. Because she wasn't professionally trained. Which, yeah, is something... I mean... Singers, I mean, you were born with an amazing voice, but it you do need to work at it. It is an instrument, and you can easily break it, too. So yeah. it, it does... I, I could understand how performing in concert halls, you would need skill. <laughs> but so one of the music critics mm-hmm. saw her potential so much, he arranged for two representatives of the Julius Rosenwald Philanthropic Organization... Rayfield and George Arthur to attend the performance Mm -hmm. and they encouraged Marion to apply for the Rosenwald Fund fellowship. Rosenwald, okay. Okay. Which uh, provided her with $1,500 to study in Berlin. Study her music in Berlin. Okay. Okay, so she she obtained that Mm -hmm. and she went to Europe Mm. and she spent a number of months studying with Sarah, Sarah Charles Cahir before launching an exceptionally successful European tour. She was just, she was loved in Europe. Wow. So like, speaking of musicals, like as you say this, I'm, I'm thinking of like how singers are back then as really much like how the, the singer lady was on, um, now I'm blinking on the musical that was really popular a couple years ago that had Hugh Jackman in it. <laughs> about the circus about oh uh, <laughs> P.T. Burnham laughing too hard <laughs> I had it and then I started talking what's that the mutants not the music man it is oh uh, the greatest showman yes okay the greatest showman <laughs> this isn't great Yes. Like, yeah. No. But then yeah, that has that character that he like is like supposedly has an affair in it, which I don't think really happened. But whatever. I have issues. I like the music from that musical. I have issues with the story. But <laughs> but I mean, it showcases how that really was. Like you just you were a singer and you just had these concert halls, and that's just how you you just yeah. traveled around. You know. I mean, it's kind of like today how bands tour, but you like had to kind of sort of have like sponsors or somebody managing you to like, just, yeah, yeah. no, exactly. Exactly. So she's just, she's looked all over Europe Mm -hmm. and in the summer of 1930, she went to Scandinavia where she met the 
Finnish pianist Kosti Venhun, mm-hmm. who became her regular accompanist and vocal coach for a number of years. Awesome. During that same performance, though, she also met Jean Sablius. Mm-hmm. And after he heard her in concert in Helsinki, he was moved by her performance. He invited her and her pianist to his home and asked his wife to bring champagne in place of the traditional coffee. Ooh. In celebration. Because her voice is worthy of champagne. Ha <laughs> ha. Told you I'd get to it. Yeah. <laughs> Sablius complimented Anderson on, on her performance and he felt that she was one of the few singers who had been able to penetrate what he called the Nordic soul in opera. Okay. Whatever the heck that means. He was just basically moved by the her. Nordic. <laughs> I'm trying to think of the origins of opera there and if it is Norse and <laughs> I don't ooh, I don't know. It could be. I don't know. <laughs> so Sibelius, who was a composer in his own right, mm-hmm. would go on to compose and alter songs for Marion, for her voice in particular. He created a new arrangement of the song Solitude and dedicated it to Anderson in 1939. Mm-hmm. Additionally, the uh, music he wrote from to... Balthazar's, Balthazar's Feast in the Jewish Girls Song mm-hmm. would later become the solitude section in the orchestral suite deriving that music. So basically he rearranged music that he'd already written mm-hmm. for Anderson's voice. Oh, in a yeah. Song, in a okay. musical. I know, it gets very confusing. I don't know. Um, I kept trying, for all of my different sources, I kept trying to find a way to word that better. And, like, none of them had good wording for that. Like, it was just, like, he did... What? He rearranged a song probably to be in her key and to probably also not overshadow her voice. Exactly. So that she was the star of the song as opposed to the song itself. That's basically what I got. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So she continued... She made her... uh, debut concert at Wigmore Hall in London in 1933. Mm. And she was accompanied by both men throughout the 19, the mid-30s. When she returned to Scandinavia in 1935, mm-hmm. she was met by fans who had Marian fever, is Ooh. what they called it. Reminded me of, like, Beatles fever. Um, <laughs> And she quickly became a favorite of many conductors and European orchestras. In 1934, uh, Saul Horak offered her a better contract than she previously had with uh, Arthur Judson. Mm -hmm. And so he became her manager and persuaded her to come back to the U.S. In 1935, she made her second recital appearance at the town hall in New York City, which received highly favorable reviews this time, as opposed to the first time around. Yeah. Always go to Europe first, gain your attention in Europe, and then come to America, and everybody's like, ooh, she's popular in Europe. (laughs) So, and she would spend the the rest of the 1930s touring the U.S. on concert tour. Awesome. 
several of the sources discuss the fact that despite her fame and how well she was received for her music, Mm -hmm. that did not stop her from suffering under Jim Crow laws and segregation during that time. Oh, wait, she traveled in the South, too? Mm -hmm. In fact, because of this discrimination, um, she met Albert Einstein, who hosted her on many occasions. (laughs) Including the first time when she, in 1937, when she was supposed to be performing for Princeton University and was denied a hotel room. Mm. She also stayed with him in the, they struck up such a friendship that she stayed with him in the months before his death in 1955. I did not know that. Right? Albert Einstein. I need to learn more about him. (laughs) He's more than just his brain, but (laughs) smart man, right? Way ahead of his time. Yeah. In all things. (laughs) So the thing that um, catapulted Marion, as as well as she was known as a musician Mm -hmm. on on the music field in the opera as a contra, contra, contralto. Contralto. I can speak, I swear. I struggle with this every week. Um, (laughs) The thing that brought notoriety was an event in 1939 in which we see those issues of race and music play out. Mm. So in 1939, Marion was invited by Howard University to D.C. as part of one of their concert series. Now, she was supposed to be their key concert. She was, she was the big name. Okay. She had such a following that Howard University went looking for a site and a hall to hold her mm-hmm. and the fans that she would want. The only two available sites that were big enough mm-hmm. were Constitution Hall and the uh, auditorium of a white public high school. Mm-hmm. In DC. Mm-hmm. Constitution Hall was under the direction of the Daughters of the American Revolution, who denied Marion a space because they had a white performers only policy in effect at the time, which had come into place the few years before 1939 because Constitution Hall was a segregated hall. And it had a limited room for black audience members in the balcony. And the rest of the space was reserved for white audience members. So, like, why have black performers if... Well, so (laughs) in the years prior, after uh, a few black performers had refused, had had issue and refused to perform to a segregated audience, they had it desegregated. Uh Uh-huh. The American, the Daughters of the American Revolution determined that they would only host white performers what? in the hall. That makes sense. Doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. <laughs> um, the District of Columbia's Board of Education also declined the request. Mm-hmm. However, the refusal by the Daughters of the American Revolution received the most notoriety and uproar. Because First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt at the time 
was a member, a board member of the Daughters of the American Revolution. And with this refusal, she resigned and wrote in her weekly publication that uh, Eleanor Roosevelt had a great quote. Well, she's looking, I could tell you, by the way, we keep on saying this word contralto, and it is a singing word that actually is a range. So she sings at the contralto level, which would be basically alto. So not as high as a soprano, but not as low as a tenor, basically like somewhere in between, by the way, just so you know, because we keep on throwing this word and not explaining, That's <laughs> not explaining it. So it is a range that she had, basically. There you go. Yeah. Thanks for the catch. <laughs> uh, so Eleanor wrote in her publication... I am in complete disagreement with the attitude taken in refusing constitutional to a great artist. You had an opportunity to lead in an enlightened way, and it seems to me that your organization has failed. So that <laughs> Eleanor was Roosevelt, everybody. That was the publication. She, Eleanor was criticized for not taking the same, not blasting the Board of Education in the same way. I feel like it was probably because she had more sway over the. <laughs> Right. Um, so several other news articles wrote similar issues. Uh, the Philadelphia Tribune wrote, a group of tottering old ladies who don't know the difference between patriotism and prudism have compelled the gracious first lady to apologize for their national rudeness. Ouch. The Richmond Times Dispatch wrote, in these days of racial intolerance is so crudely expressed in the Third Reich, an action such as the DARs, Daughters of the American Revolution's ban, seems all the more deplorable. Whoa, did, did, was that just like, oh, so you Nazis? Like, was that what that was? Basically. Jeez. Basically, that was, that was the call out by the Richmond Times. Um, because of all of this fervor, At Eleanor Roosevelt's instigation, uh, President Roosevelt and Walter White, the then executive secretary of the NAACP, Mm -hmm. persuaded the Secretary of the Interior, Harold L. Ikes, to arrange an open-air concert on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial instead. Wow. So, the concert was performed on Easter Sunday... April 9th, 1939, mm. Anderson was accompanied, as usual, by Van Hain, mm. and they began the performance with a dignified and stirring rendition of My Country, Tis of Thee. Oh. The event attracted a crowd of more than 75,000, in addition to the national radio audience of millions. <laughs> I, I gotta I gotta stop you because mm-hmm. like one of my favorite things about my country tis of thee is we literally just stole the British national anthem and just put our own American stamp on it, which is like my favorite thing about music yeah. sometimes. So the other big piece on this is mm-hmm. when she sang our country tis of, my country tis of thee, mm-hmm. she actually changed the line mm-hmm. I sing of thee to to thee we sing. Wait, that's how I know it. <laughs> she changed the lyrics. And it forever stayed that way because that's how I was taught that song. Exactly. Ooh. And at the time, because of all of the uproar about this, it was seen not only for its music, but for its general, general. 
inclination that we as a people must rise up and we, we. as a people belong to this nation and this nation belongs to us. Mm-hmm. So it was a it was a big move. However, historians do point out the fact um, on several different articles that Anderson would often not refer in the first person. It was always we whenever she spoke, even. So it wasn't like an intentional... It wasn't intentional. She just literally would always say that. And when asked why, her explanation was... The quote is, We cannot live alone, she said. And the thing that made this moment possible for you and for me has been brought about by many people whom we will never know. Mm. Beautiful. Right? Yeah. After the concert, two months later, Eleanor Roosevelt gave a speech on the national on national radio and presented Marion with the nineteen thirty-nine Springgarn Medal for Distinguished Achievement. Ooh. There was a two thousand one documentary film of the event that was chosen for the National Film Registry and NBC radio coverage of the event was selected for the National Recording Registry. Awesome. So, so you can find recordings of her you singing. You can find okay. recordings of her singing. After 1939, during World War II and mm-hmm. the Korean War, she would entertain troops in hospitals and at bases overseas. Mm-hmm. In 1943, she sang at the Constitution Hall, having been invited by the Daughters of the American Revolution to perform, an, to perform before an integrated audience as part of a benefit for the American Red Cross. All right. She said of the event, when I finally walked onto the stage of Constitution Hall, I felt no different than I had in other halls. There was no sense of triumph. I felt it was a beautiful concert hall, and I was happy to sing there. <laughs> Just completely, like, dissing on. <laughs> it's like, eh, yeah. it's fine. I'm a singer. It's I'm here to give you my voice. That's <laughs> exactly. This, yeah. is, this is what I do. Mm-hmm. So... In June 1953, she headlined the Ford 50th anniversary show in New York City, which was broadcast live on both NBC and CBS. She sang, he's got the whole world in his hands, and she returned to close with her own rendition of the Battle Hymn of the Republic. Ooh, I love singing that song. This program attracted an audience of 60 million viewers. Okay. <laughs> so, in 1955, she became the first African American to sing with the Metropolitan Opera in New York. Wow. She would go on further in 1957 to sing for Eisenhower's inauguration, President Eisenhower's inauguration. Mm-hmm. She then toured India and the Far East as a goodwill ambassador through the U.S. State Department and the American National Theater and Academy. Wow. She traveled 35,000 miles in 12 weeks, giving 24 concerts. (laughs) Right? Yeah. After that, President Eisenhower was like, you've done it. Now I'm going to appoint you as a delegate to the United Nations Human Rights Council. Wow. Okay. (laughs) In 1958, she was officially designated as a delegate to the United Nations and formalization of her role as a goodwill ambassador of the U.S. In 1961, she sang for President JFK's inauguration. Yay! And in 1962, she she performed 
for President Kennedy and the other and other dignitaries in the East Room and toured Australia. She did benefit concerts to aid the American Israel Cultural Foundation, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, Mm -hmm. and the Congress of Racial Equality. Mm -hmm. Then in 1963. Uh, Like, we've only gotten to 63. Yeah. She sang at the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom with Martin Luther King Jr. Oh. That same year, she received the Presidential Medal of Freedom. Mm Mm-hmm. For her, contrib- her notorious contributions to the security and national interests of the United mm. States, world peace. And that is the highest honor a civilian can receive. Correct. Mm-hmm. And then keeping with our Pennsylvania women's theme, because apparently women in Pennsylvania do this a lot, she then wrote a book. <laughs> <laughs> However, hers was not an autobiography. Ooh. She instead released an album and short story called Snoopy Cat. The Adventures of Marian Anderson's Cat Snoopy. Snoopy Cat. I feel like I know I've heard that before. <laughs> right? I don't know if I've heard a song from it or what, but I know I've heard the term Snoopy Cat before. Yep. And <laughs> it was about her beloved black cat. In the same year, she began her goodwill, good farewell tour, which began at Constitution Hall. On Saturday, October 24th, 1964, and ended April 18th, 1965 at Carnegie Hall. Mm-hmm. And that say in 1965, when she just finished, finished her farewell tour, mm-hmm. she then christened the nuclear-powered ballistic missile submarine, <laughs> the USS George Washington Carver. <laughs> so this is generally her, her big life. She would go on to continue to give small concerts for benefits mm-hmm. and in significant areas, but she generally retired from public life, retired from singing in 1965. Yeah, it's, that's a lot on your voice to just yeah. constantly tour and sing and sing. And <laughs> um, but she would go on to con- become a conductor. In oh. 1976, she... Uh, helped to conduct the Philadelphia Orchestra in Saratoga and her amazing amazing voice and contributions have been numerously honored Hmm. she has been awarded 24 honorary doctoral degrees (laughs) including from Howard University, Temple University Smith College and many others Hmm. during the same time she would get married Oh. So on July 17, 1943, she married architect Orphus H. King Fisher. Fisher had initially asked her to marry him when they were both teenagers in high school. <laughs> oh. <laughs> the wedding was a private ceremony, and it had to be moved because the original church that it was supposed to be at was holding a bake sale oh. on the lawn. And so the ceremony was moved to a different chapel on the grounds so that that way it could be continued as a private event. Her marriage gained her a stepson, James Fisher, Hmm. from her husband's previous marriage to Ida Gould. After their marriage, they would purchase a 100-acre farm. Nice. And they would build multiple structures on the property. Hmm. 
hmm. including an acoustic rehearsal studio designed specifically for Marion. Mm-hmm. From 1940, Marion renamed 50 Acres. She sold half the... In 1940, she sold half the farm. Mm-hmm. And she named it... Sorry, no, I apologize. In 1950, <laughs> they sold half of the original 100 acres and resided on the fi- on 50 acres, which she named Mariana Farm. Hmm. In 1996, the farm was named one of 60 sites on the Connecticut Freedom Trail. Oh, all right, cool. However, in 1980, or in the in the late 1990s. The property itself was sold to a real estate developer, but the uh, historical organizations petitioned and purchased her recording studio and moved it into downtown, where it's become open to the public as a museum in downtown. Oh, that's pretty cool. Yeah. They picked up the building and they They, moved downtown. Yeah, they literally just picked up the building and walked it away. Fisher died in 1986 after 43 years of marriage, and Marion remained a resident on Mariana Farm until 1992, one year before her death. Mm. In that year, she moved to Oregon, in Portland, Oregon, oh. where she stayed with her, ste- with her nephew, James Anderson DePriest, the conductor. The conductor. And she died April 8th, 1993. She's interred in Endon Cemetery in Collingdale, Pennsylvania. Mm. So that is the story of Marianne, Marian Anderson. Mm-hmm. Words. <laughs> so, uh, by, again, I started citations for today. Started with the Wikipedia as one does, um, and was directed to the uh, article uh, done by NPR for the event, the 1939 event, mm-hmm. commemoration of the event, as well as, and that article was written by, by Susan Stamberg, and it was published on April 14th. April 9th, 2014. Mm-hmm. I think my favorite line from that article is um, from when Ikes introduced Anderson to the desegregated crowd, and he stated, In this great auditorium under the sky, all of us are free. Genius like justice is blind. Genius draws no color lines. And genius has touched Marian Anderson. Mm-hmm. Which I thought was great. Yeah. Um, and then the article by the Metropolitan Opera Guild entitled, Mar- entitled Marian Anderson at the Met, the 50th anniversary, early career. And then archive, the NSD, uh, NSDAR archives of the Marian Anderson documents from the Daughters of the American Revolution. They kept numerous documents on her. I think generally in an effort to correct for their failings. Mm-hmm. And then the University of Pennsylvania's uh, Library Special Collections, Marian Anderson's papers, circa 1900 to 1993, 
scope and content note, just kind of generally giving me an overview mm-hmm. of all of those things. So that is Marian Anderson, the voice worthy of champagne. I just, I did, I loved that little like side note in mm-hmm. the articles that I read. The yeah. The articles I read that like. No coffee for her. Champagne. No, 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 no coffee. <laughs> Bring us the champagne. <laughs> Because you speak to the Nordic spirit. And I'm like, Nordic I don't even spirit. know what that means. What? But, Jessica, if people want to talk to you about their favorite musicals, yes. and particularly the fact that Hamilton is an opera, yes. where can they find you? You can find me on Twitter as J.M. Bailey Writes. And you can find me with the rest of Geek Elite Media at Geek Elite Media and our Facebook page, forward slash Geek Elite Media. Archived episodes of this podcast and other podcasts can be found at geeklatemedia.com. Mm-hmm. As stated at the top, please join us on our Patreon page. Patreon! I'm sure it's getting obnoxious, so just go donate to us and then we'll stop talking about it. Huh. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> but until next time, this is the United States of Women from the Geek Elite Media Network mm-hmm. saying always remember to geek, geek out. out. This concludes our broadcast.